Well, thank you, Dr. Steve. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing well. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 11. Romans 11, 11. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you a little story that happened uh, recently in my home. So as you know, we had Thanksgiving uh, recently, a little over a week ago. And uh, my brother was over at our house one evening, uh, and he brought his girlfriend. Now, his girlfriend is actually from Romania. She was born in Romania. She grew up in Romania. She actually came to the U.S. on a tennis scholarship, and uh, she was hanging out with us as well. And he said to her, he said, uh, Gabby, do you know, that's her name, Gabby, do you know why we celebrate Thanksgiving? And she said, well, no, we don't have Thanksgiving in uh, Romania. Would you tell me, why do you celebrate Thanksgiving? And then all of a sudden, I looked at my brother, and I realized he had put himself in a conundrum that he had no idea about the purpose of, uh, of Thanksgiving. And so he goes, well, you know, a long, a long time ago, there were some, do you, do you know what a pilgrim is? They're like these people and they have buckles on their shoes and they came over and they ate some food with the Indians. That was his story. That was Thanksgiving. And I looked at him and I said, I'm not sure you know the meaning of Thanksgiving. That's like somebody coming up to you and be like, tell me the story of Christmas. Why do we celebrate Christmas? And you're like, well, a long time ago, Frosty the Snowman gave birth to baby Santa. And he teamed up with the elves to fight against the Magi, and that's why we celebrate Hanukkah. At no point in any story that I'm telling or he's telling was the purpose of Thanksgiving made clear, okay? I tell you that because in this text today, the Apostle Paul is going to give us the purpose of something. Romans 9 through 11 really has one central theme, and it's simply this, that if God has promised salvation to the Jews... And so many Jews are not saved because they're not following Jesus the Messiah. Has God been unfaithful to his promise? That's really the issue going on in Romans 9 through 11. So there's been a lot of these things about Jews' hearts being hardened and God's election and these kind of things. But here in Romans 11 today, we're going to start to get to see the purpose. Why did God do it this way? Why is God hardening the hearts of the Jews for a time? Why is he letting Gentiles in? And we're going to get the purpose of this, okay? Now, there are a lot of really tricky chapters in the book of Romans. Chapter 3 is difficult because it talks about our sin and our depravity. Romans 9 is difficult because it talks about things like election and reprobation. Romans 11 is especially difficult because it's going to deal with who are the people of God. Does God have two people, Israel and the church? Does he just have one people? Who are the people of God? And there is a big debate in Romans 11 about what this looks like. What does it mean eventually in Romans 11 where it says that all Israel will be saved? What does that mean and what does it not mean? And so this is a passage that's often debated amongst Christians, amongst scholars, amongst theologians, because it's trying to answer this question. Okay, let me, let me give you the big question. In the Old Testament, there are all these promises made to Israel. Are those promises to be fulfilled in the church, the new Israel, what Galatians 6 calls the Israel of God, or are those promises to be fulfilled in literal, national, physical Israel? If you hold the first position, you are called a covenantalist. If you hold the second position, you are called a dispensationalist, okay? Now, I am much more sympathetic to the covenantalist position. We have a blog on that. We have a theological equipping on that called Intro uh, to Covenants, but this is a big question. Let me tell you where this is practical. When did the modern state of Israel become an actual uh, recognized nation? Who knows the date? 1948. Okay, 1948, you got the official recreation, if you will, of the state of Israel. When was Israel a nation before that? A long time ago, like millennia. They, they weren't a nation for a long time, and then they were in 1948. Why? Because the United States recognized them as becoming a nation. The United States holds a lot of sway and power internationally, and so they recognized them as a nation. 
Why did they recognize them as a nation? One, for political purposes, but here's the interesting thing. Another one was because the vast majority of Americans, having been influenced by dispensationalism, thought that Israel had a right biblically to that land. Okay? So if you don't think theology is practical, you don't think theology plays into other areas of your life, you can make or break a nation based upon your theology. Okay? So what we're going to be going over today is going to seem like some random theology, some random things we're learning about the church and Israel and these kind of things, but know that whenever you're studying the Bible, it is affecting your politics, it is affecting your ethics, it's affecting your family life. Theology is inherently practical. Okay? So let's pray, and then we're going to get into verse 11. <clears throat> Almighty God, we thank you for uh, just your overwhelming kindness, your overwhelming grace. I ask that you would uh, guide us as we work through this uh, somewhat strange text, and uh, that you would guide our thinking on these things. We thank you for your word, uh, both your inscripturated word and your incarnated word, your son who became flesh for our salvation while remaining God. We bless you, and we ask it all in his name. Amen. Well, let's look together at uh, verse 11. We're going to walk through this text line by line. If you're visiting with us for the first time, uh, we typically are just pick books of the Bible and walk through them. So we've been walking through the uh, book of Romans, and here we are in Romans 11. Uh, let's look at verse 11. It says this, So I ask, did they, that's the Jews, the Jews living at the time of the first century, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. What does that mean? Let me give you a little interpretation of verse 11. Here's what verse 11 is asking. Is Israel's failure to obtain salvation permanent? No, it's temporary. Why? So that Gentiles may be saved and Israel will become jealous that these non-Jews, these Gentiles, have found God. Okay, let's break down verse 11. Look at the first part here. It says this, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Here's what this means. Though the majority of Jews in the first century have rejected Christ, has Israel stumbled so far to where they are irretrievably and irrevocably damned? And what the Apostle Paul says is no. Okay? Let me give you an example. What is the difference between prison and being on death row? You know the difference? Now, don't, don't get me wrong. They're both bad. Okay? They're both bad. Prison might seem like a great place. Yes, you get a free gym. Yes, you get to meet new and interesting friends. Yes, you get to uh, risk infection by getting a sweet prison tattoo, whatever it is. But all in all, prison's not as much fun as you think, okay? But on the other end of the spectrum, prison is at least temporary when you're on death row and there's no parole, it's permanent. You're both locked away for a time, but in prison, eventually you get let out. Whereas if you're on death row, it ends in something that's permanent, okay? What the Apostle Paul is saying is that Israel's temporary hardening is not like death row. It's not that God's final word or final say to Israel is no more, but rather it's a temporary hardening. It's something that where they've stumbled and they're in a state of stumbling, but they have not irretrievably fallen is what he's saying here. Okay? Look at the second part of verse 11. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Here's what he's saying. The Jews rejecting Christ and Christ being offered to the Gentiles. Okay? He's going to say there, there are two big things that are going on here. He said, first of all, the gospel is going to all nations. The gospel is going out to Gentiles. What is a Gentile? That's not a term we use much outside of church. I doubt someone cuts you off in traffic and you're like, you dirty Gentile, right? Or call him a Philistine. We don't typically do that. That's a church word. That just means someone who's not a Jew. So the first thing the Apostle Paul is saying is by the Jews rejecting Christ, God is using that for a good purpose, and that Gentiles are getting saved. The Greek word here is ethnos. It's where you get the word ethnicity. 
right? That the gospel is going out to the nations is the idea. Let me show you a passage where you see this in the book of Acts. Acts 28, 23 through 28 says this. This is about the Apostle Paul. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God. Notice that the gospel is not just about personal salvation. It's this bigger end times event that is broken into the present in Christ. Testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about uh, Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So the Apostle Paul says there's a good thing that's going to come of this, and it's this, that the gospel's going to go to the nations, that the gospel's going to go to Gentiles. Christianity is birthed out of Judaism. We are completed Judaism. Judaism promised a Messiah. We are the ones who believe in that Jewish Messiah, and that's what he's talking about here. Now, he says that there's something else that's going on. Look again at verse 11, that second half. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. That one of the things God is doing is he is provoking Israel to jealousy so that they might want to get in, that they might have salvation. Let me give you an example. So, I have two kids, okay? I'm I'm a bit manic depressive. I've never been diagnosed that way, but I guarantee you that I am. My highs are really high and my lows are really low, okay? Now, I have two kids, Isla, who's manic, and Judah, who's depressive, okay? Isla is so sweet and smiley and cute, and then she's not. At some point, something goes off, and she becomes feisty. She's like this baby, adorable, pink little wolverine, and when you go to get her out of her crib, you have to make sure that she hasn't taken one of her toys and whittled it into a shift, okay? (laughs) Judah, my son, on the other hand, he's very relational. He's very emotional. He's very aware of what's going on. He'll come up and say, I feel sad, or why is that sad look on your face, or I'm happy. He's very in tune with his emotions, okay? Now, let's say for a second that he's pouting. He's upset. He's frustrated. He's in a corner, and I say, hey, buddy, you want to have some ice cream with daddy? And he goes, no, I don't want any ice cream. What I'm going to then do is I'm going to take Isla, and I'm going to sit her on my lap, and we're going to get a big bowl of ice cream. And I'm going to say, hey, baby, do you want some ice cream? Mm, And I'll eat it, and I'll give it some, some to her, and she'll eat like the whole spoon right? And so then I've just got to scoop it in her mouth with my hand. She's just that aggressive, okay? So I'm feeding ice cream, and I look over at my son, and he's still looking pouty. And I'm like, mmm, this is good ice cream. Isla, do you like this ice cream? Ah! And she just makes a baby noise. She doesn't, she can't talk. All of a sudden, what's going to happen is he's going to start to think, wait a second, I kind of want some ice cream. I kind of want some ice cream. That's kind of what this text is talking about. The hope is that Gentiles would get the ice cream, that they would get these blessings, they would get these good things. They're the ones getting salvation. They're the ones getting Christ. They're the ones seeing miracles. They're the ones having their sins forgiven and all these kind of things. And the hope is that Israel would see that and be provoked to jealousy. Not a bad kind of jealousy. Bad jealousy is where you want something that doesn't belong to you. But a good kind of jealousy where they might want to get in as well. There's something that's interesting about the human heart, and it's that, one, when somebody has something... We typically want it. We're naturally covetous. But there's something else to where if we really want something that somebody else has, we will act like we don't really want it. Anybody else? 
So I will see somebody pull up, let's say in a new sports car, okay? It's fancy, it's red, it's flashy, and here's what I'm thinking. What a waste of money. Build up your treasure in heaven. I bet that thing guzzles gas. I bet you get a bunch of tickets because it looks fast. But deep down, I'm thinking, I really want that car. I wish I had that car, right? Or uh, Tim and Carl, so two of our staff members, Tim is our worship minister and uh, Carl's our family minister, uh, they're both excellent musicians. So Tim obviously plays up here, and then uh, Carl actually did both his master's uh, and bachelor's degree in French horn performance. He was a professional musician. And so what they will do is they will sit down together sometimes and talk music. And so what I will do is make fun of them, right? I'll be like, you nerds, I'm going to stuff you back in a locker and take your lunch money or whatever it is. But deep down, I'm thinking... I wish I could play some musical instrument. I wish I could sing, right? When I sing, sing, it sounds like I'm getting kidnapped by carnival people. It's not beautiful, right? And so I'm jealous. So I act like I don't want what they have, but really I do. Or they'll also play board games or whatever, like Dungeons and Dragons or Wizards and Warlocks or whatever, some sort of mythical and mythical game, and I'll make fun of them. But then I think to myself, I wish I had friends. I wish, I wish I could play a game with people that loved me. So there's something to where when there's something we really want, we downplay it and act like we don't really want it. And so you see this thing going on in the first century where these Gentiles are getting saved and there's joy and forgiveness and all of that. And the Jews are kind of like that older brother in the corner saying, I don't want any of that. I don't want any of what's going on there. Okay? Let's look at verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? What does verse 12 mean? Let me give you an interpretation of verse 12. If Israel's rejection of the Messiah means Gentiles get saved, think about what a blessing it will be whenever many in Israel come to salvation. Okay? So the Apostle Paul here is not saying that it's good that Israel rejected the Messiah. What he's saying, though, is God is using it for a good purpose. That to quote one pastor, God can give a straight lick with a crooked stick. That he can hit a bullseye with a crooked arrow. That if God can use something bad for a good purpose, think about how great it will be when God uses something good for a good purpose. Okay? My dad used to say to me, I've forgotten more than you'll ever know. That doesn't mean forgetting is good. But what he's saying is my intelligence is so high that I have forgotten more than you'll ever know. Or if I say to you, I could beat you at basketball even if I'm injured. And by the way, I could. That doesn't mean injury is good. It means that even if I was injured, I'm so good at basketball that I could beat you at that, okay? What Paul is saying here is not that it's good that Jews are rejecting Christ, but rather God is so intelligent, God is so wise, God is so powerful that he can even use it for something good. And if that's the case, think about how great it will be when he saves those in Israel. That's the idea. Look at the second half of verse 12. How much more will their full inclusion mean? Literally in Greek, it literally just says the fullness, right? The pleroma. How much more will their full inclusion mean? That means the full inclusion of the Jews. Now, let me explain what that does and doesn't mean, okay? What that does and doesn't mean. We'll talk more about this in a few weeks when we get back into uh, uh, the, the, the last part of Romans 11. But here's, let me explain what he is and is not saying. By saying that there will be a fullness of Jews who come into salvation, first of all, he does not mean that Israel will be saved apart from Christ. Okay? Jesus is not a polygamist. He has one bride, the church. He does not have any other brides. Okay? He's not saying Israel will be saved apart from Christ or somehow apart from the church. That's important to keep in mind. 
There are some theologians that teach there's basically two ways to salvation. If you're a Gentile, you need Jesus. But if you're a Jew, you already have these Old Testament covenants and you don't need Jesus. The problem, the Apostle Paul will point out, is that you've broken all those covenants, which is why you need forgiveness, which is why you need Jesus, whether you're Jew or Gentile. So it doesn't mean that Israel will be saved apart from belief in Christ. It also doesn't mean that every single Jew will be saved. Okay? Think about the millions of Jews who have died just over the past 2,000 years. This does not mean that all Jews will be saved. Okay? It isn't the dispensational idea that Jews will one day see that they were wrong by a pre-tribulational rapture of Christians and then believe in the Messiah. Let me back up. What some people think is this, that Jesus will come invisibly for Christians first, okay? And they will be sucked up into heaven and they will be basically little piles of clothes on the floor, okay? I actually saw a prank recently. There was a, a lady who believed in this view of the rapture and uh, she went in a coffee shop and when she went to the bathroom, all her friends left the coffee shop and left their clothes all over the floor. So she came out and she's like, oh, I missed it, right? So the idea within that, that end times worldview is that Jesus will come once, snatch up believers, take us away, and then the Jews will obviously see that they're wrong because all their Christian buddies are gone, and then they'll believe in Jesus. And then there'll be a third coming of Jesus later on. That's not a biblical view, okay? The Bible never speaks to a pre-tribulational rapture. Every text people try to use and make it about that is actually about the second coming, okay? That's obvious. There's a trumpet and a shout and an archangel and all these obvious things. It's not this invisible thing, okay? What does it then mean, though, to say that there will be this fullness or this full inclusion of Jews? Here's all I think that you can say that it means. Paul somehow anticipates that there will be a time when God softens the hearts of Israel and many people believe in Jesus. I'd like to give you more details. I don't know that there are more details I can give. Okay? Paul just somehow sees that there's a temporary hardening over the hearts of Israel, and one day he sees that hardening is going away, and he doesn't give us a lot of other details. I think that's what he's talking about here. One of the things that's interesting here is that uh, a lot of things were happening in the first century that were the opposite of the way the Jews thought it would happen. The Jews assumed that most Jews would be saved and maybe only a few Gentiles. A few people like Rahab who weren't originally in the covenant would kind of trickle in, but mainly it'd be about the Jews, and yet the opposite's happening. Gentiles are getting in by and large, and many Jews are rejecting Christ. Conversely, they thought that at the end of time, Gentiles would get saved, and then the end would happen. What the Apostle Paul says is, no, that's backwards too. What's going to happen before the resurrection, before the second coming, before these kind of things, is you're going to have a bunch of Jews get saved. Okay? Verses 13 through 14. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. And as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Let's break this one down. Verse 13. He says, I am an apostle to the Gentiles. What does that mean? First of all, let's back up and explain what an apostle is. The Greek word apostolos, where we get our word apostle, is just someone who's sent out, okay? It's a generic term for someone who's sent out. Your mailman technically is an apostolos, okay? Someone who's sent out. However, in the New Testament, the way that that word is primarily used is not the generic sense of one who's just sent out by somebody, but rather it means capital A apostle, big boy apostle. I can write scripture, I've seen the resurrected Jesus, and I've been commissioned by Jesus to be an apostle, okay? That is a much bigger concept than many people have the, uh, of what an apostle is. There are actually some charismatic churches where people will call themselves apostles, and I have to let them know that's a bit confusing and proud. If you were really holy, you'd go by the title servant, right? So an apostle is somebody who meets two requirements in the New Testament. They've seen the resurrected Jesus, like Paul on the road to Damascus or the other apostles, 
And they've been commissioned by Jesus to be an apostle. They've been sent out. That's where you get the word apostle, but sent out by Christ personally. Okay? So in that sense, there are no more capital big A apostles today. And an apostle goes out and ministers to people. The church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. And what the apostle Paul is saying is that he specifically is called to the Gentiles, called to the non-Jews. Let me read you some passages. Romans 15, 15 through 16. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Acts 26, 17, Paul is told, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Paul is sent out to the Gentiles. Acts 9, 15, but the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry out my name before the Gentiles and kings of the children of, I'm sorry, the kings and the children of Israel. Galatians 2, 7 through 10. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, that's Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So what the Apostle Paul is saying is, I've been sent out as an apostle. I speak on the authority of Christ. I can write scripture. I'm a big A apostle, and I'm specifically sent to the Gentiles. And he says, in this work, look at the next phrase there in verse 13, I magnify my ministry. I magnify my ministry. Let me explain what that does and doesn't mean. That doesn't mean Paul says, look at me, I'm awesome. Let me sign your Bible. I want to go preach a passion conference. I have a million followers on Twitter. I'm the Apostle Paul. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, I glorify myself. What he's saying is, I'm the Apostle to the Gentiles, and I work really hard at it. I do the best job that I can. I try to be as faithful as I can. I've been given the Gentiles, and so when it comes to my ministry to the Gentiles, I magnify that in the sense that I do the best job that I can, okay? I had a professor one time say in a class to a group of those training for ministry, he said something that I thought was really good. He said, take the job seriously, but don't take yourself seriously. I thought that was good advice. Take the job seriously. Take evangelism seriously, take theology seriously, take discipleship seriously, but don't take yourself seriously. What a lot of churches will do is the opposite. They care about their name and their renown and their brand and their watery on theology. The Bible does the opposite. So what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's not saying, and I'm great. He's saying, and I try to be faithful with what's been entrusted to me. Okay? One of the things you'll notice here at Parkway, that we, we try to exemplify that. So if you talk to or see the staff and the elders interact, we are joking and laughing and playing pranks and being silly, right? Because we don't take ourselves seriously because we're not the point. Parkway's not about us. The gospel's not about us. But then immediately we can turn around and crack open our Bibles and debate some difficult point of theology because we magnify our ministry. We take the discipleship of people, the conversion of souls, these kind of things very seriously. Now look at verse 14. In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Now, I just said the Apostle Paul was called primarily to the Gentiles. Here's now what he's saying. That God is using his ministry to the Gentiles with a secondary objective, with a secondary purpose, which is also to reach Jews. In the same way that the Apostle Peter is primarily called to the Jews, but he also goes to Gentiles, right, like in Acts 10, the Apostle Paul is called to the Gentiles, but God is using that ministry to the Gentiles to also affect 
the Jews, that there's this primary goal and there's this secondary goal, okay? I'll give you a little illustration. When my wife was pregnant with our firstborn, my son, uh, I had gained a little, let's call it sympathy weight, okay? It wasn't because I was just eating Doritos and ice cream and not working out. It was really for her. That's really why I did it, okay? I gained this sympathy weight so she wouldn't feel bad, and I had a bit of what was called a dad bod. You know what a dad bod is? It's where you can tell that someone used to work out, but they're also not, also not afraid to crush a pizza on the weekend, okay? So I had gained some weight when my wife was pregnant. Now, <clears throat> I, my entire adult life, have struggled a bit with anxiety. I've mentioned this, fear, anxiety, some depression. And so what I decided to do after my son was born is I decided I would start exercising mainly to just fight the depression, to fight the anxiety, okay? Mainly just go for a run when I felt anxious or whatever to help fight that anxiety. So what I started doing is whenever I felt anxious, I would go for a run. Not, not right that moment, not like I'm in Walmart and I feel anxious and I just start jogging. But that day, later on, when I got home, I would go for a run. So my primary goal was to fight the anxiety. But I also found out over time that I also lost a little bit of weight. That wasn't the goal. That wasn't the intent. I had this other specific goal of fighting anxiety, and this was this secondary consequence. Okay? What the Apostle Paul is saying is that his primary goal is in ministering to Gentiles, but as they get saved, it provokes Jews to jealousy, and they want to get saved as well. That's his hope. That's his hope. Today, when I get anxious, I still go for a run. The problem now, though, is I live in the same neighborhood with Tim Hollis, okay? He lives eight houses down from me, and he has this uncanny ability to know when I'm running and to somehow be creepily watching me, okay? So I'll be running, and I'll look over at his house, and he's like staring out the window, looking at me. Or I'll be running, and there'll be no one around, and I'll get a text on my phone that's like, I like that red shirt. I'm like, where are you, Tim? One time, he even drove up beside me in his car playing Eye of the Tiger, <laughs> so I might have a little motivation when I'm going for a jog, okay? But what the Apostle Paul is saying is though he's called to the Gentiles, his ministry is being used to reach Jews as well. Let's look at the last two verses here, verses 15 through 16. There's a lot in here. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Look at verse, verse 15 uh, first. I want you to see something that's, that's kind of tricky here. Do you see the words, their rejection, in verse 15? And you see the words later on, their acceptance? Here's my question to you. Is that the Jews' acceptance of God, or is that the Jews' acceptance by God? Is that the Jews' rejection of God, or is that the Jews' rejection by God? Okay? In Greek, it can be either one. So I've, I've created two little uh, different interpretations, and they've put them up on the, uh, uh, the screen there for you so you can see these differences, okay? So let's look at the first one. I, I'm pointing this way as if you're going to turn around. Let's look at the first one, okay? Uh, the first one is, for if they're rejecting God, that's how it takes their rejection. For if their rejection of God means the reconciliation of the world, what will their accepting God mean but life from the dead? The other way you can interpret this is, for if their rejection by God, means the reconciliation of the world. What will their acceptance by God mean but life from the dead? Okay? This is, uh, in Greek, either one of these are possible. So the question you have to ask is, who is the active agent doing the stuff? Is it Jews rejecting and accepting God? Or is it God rejecting and accepting Jews? Either one could be true in Greek. However, the context makes it clear here, especially as you go on to keep reading, uh, if you keep reading in Romans 11, that it's God who is doing the stuff. 
If God has rejected Israel and used it for a good purpose, what will it mean when God reaccepts Israel? That's the idea. God is the active agent. It's what's called an objective genitive here. Okay? Now, here's the reason I tell you this. You cannot get away from the idea of election in Paul. There are people that act like election and predestination, and these things are just kind of minor doctrines. They're just mentioned a few times in the Bible as if that somehow makes them less valuable. But what you're going to find out is over and over and over again, you cannot get this idea out of your mind that it is God who does the stuff. It is God who does the rejection. It is God who does the acceptance. It's God who hardens hearts. It's God who softens hearts. You cannot get away from that even here in Romans 11. Okay? So what he's saying is, if it was God who rejected Israel to save Gentiles, what will it mean when God, in a sense, re-accepts Israel? There's a New Testament uh, theologian I like named Mark Seifert. Here's what he says about this passage. Precisely because Israel's fall came from God's hand, Israel has not fallen out of God's hand. That's the idea, because God is sovereign. Now look at verse 15. It says, notice this phrase, reconciliation of the world. Okay? For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. Now let me be clear. Does that mean that every single person will be saved just because the word world is used? No. We talk about this a lot when we talk about things like limited atonement. Just because the Bible uses the word all or every or world, that does not mean every single person. Okay? For God so loved the world does not mean he loves every single person. Apparently he hates Esau. Okay? The reconciliation of the world is not that everyone will be saved. It's that those who will be saved are saved by Christ. That's the idea. So notice that a lot of times the word world or all or every doesn't mean every single, but rather there are these general generic categories of the fact that God is the Savior of humanity. Here in this context, the world there means Gentiles. For if their rejection, the Jews, Jews' rejection, means the reconciliation of Gentiles, that's all that it means. It's not saying every single person will be saved. Now look at uh, verse 15 again. What is the result? It says, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead. What does that mean? What will their acceptance mean from life, but life from the dead? Some people think that verse 15 is parallel with verse 12, and by the way that it is. In verse 12, Paul basically said, if the Jews rejecting God led to Gentile salvation, how great will it be when God saves Israel? What will that lead to? And here, the apostle Paul finishes his thought. He says it will lead to, it'll be like life from the dead. Now the question is, is that just metaphorical? Is the Apostle Paul just saying, well, if God used this bad thing to produce a good thing, he's going to use a good thing to produce an even better thing. It will be like life from the dead, metaphorically. Well, that's certainly true, but I actually think that this text hints at a bigger idea, which would have been common in the New Testament and common in Judaism, which is this idea, that Paul here is referring to the actual general resurrection of everyone. The Bible's clear that you don't just become a soul up in heaven and stay there forever, but rather your soul is reunited to your body and there is bodily resurrection. In Jewish thinking, it was a very common Jewish idea to understand that a full amount of Jews that God was going to be saved had to be saved first and then the resurrection would happen. Let me say that again. If you're a Jew in the first century, when will God resurrect people? The answer is after the fullness of Jews after the number of Jews that God has elected is brought to salvation, then there will be resurrection. Let me show you a few passages outside of the Bible. Okay, let me be clear. Anytime I want to read these, I want to be clear. What I'm about to read to you is not in the Bible. It is not scripture. It is not divinely authoritative. These are works of Jewish literature to help you better understand what Jews thought about, and those thoughts trickle into the New Testament, but these texts are not scripture themselves. The first one, 4th Ezra. You guys done uh, any devotionals out of 4th Ezra recently? 4th Ezra, 
4, 35 through 37. I think we're going to throw it up on the screen. Did not the souls of the righteous in their chambers ask about these matters, saying, How long are we to remain here? And when will the harvest of our reward come? And the archangel, Jeremiel. You didn't know there was a Jeremiel, did you? You just thought there was just Michael and Gabriel. There you go, Jeremiel. Answered and said, When the number of those like yourselves is completed, for he has weighed the ages, I'm sorry, he has weighed the age in, a ba- in the balance, and measured the times by measure, and numbered the times by number, and he will not move or arouse them until that measure is fulfilled. Second, Baruch 23, 4 through 5. Because when Adam sinned and death was decreed against those who should be born, then the multitude of those who should be born was numbered. And for that purpose, a place was prepared where the living might dwell and the dead might be guarded. Before, therefore, the number aforesaid is fulfilled, the creature will not live again, for my spirit is the creator of life, and Sheol will receive the dead. What does all that mean? If you are a Jew in the first century, here's your concept of what happens to you when you die. When you die, your body goes into the ground, your soul goes to a place called Sheol. You ever seen the phrase Sheol in the Old Testament? Sometimes it's translated grave. That's not a great translation. The Sheol was seen as this shadowy netherworld, okay? Sometimes it's called the Raphaim, the shades. So the idea is that your soul goes to Sheol. Sheol is a big waiting room, okay? The righteous go to Sheol. There's a good part of Sheol. And the unrighteous go to Sheol. There's a bad part of Sheol. And then one day, you will be bodily resurrected. I say all of that simply to say that what the Apostle Paul is saying here is one day, there will be this influx of Jews who get saved by believing in Jesus. And that is a mark that the end has come. That is a mark that we will one day be bodily resurrected. That's what he's saying here in this passage. Okay? Let's look at verse 16. If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. What is this talking about? Uh, My first anniversary, okay? So I've been married about eight years now, and uh, my first anniversary, I wanted to do something romantic, all right, for my wife. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to make her breakfast in bed. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but I know nothing about cooking. I know less than nothing about cooking. That's a logical impossibility, but that's how much I know about cooking. I can make a bowl of cereal. I can make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich sometimes. Sometimes there's too much jelly. It's just jelly falling out everywhere, okay? But I cannot cook at all. But I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wake up early, and I'm going to make her breakfast in bed. It will be so romantic. And so I snuck out of bed, and I went into the kitchen, and I said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make eggs and pancakes, okay? So I did what anyone does when they're trying to make eggs. I take a skillet, and I don't put any butter in it, and I don't spray it with Crisco, and I get it as hot as I can, right? Like, it's like glowing orange, and I'm like, perfect. Egg. As soon as that egg hits it, just shrivels up. I'm like... Making eggs is easy. Why don't I do this more? Scoop one. I do that with another egg. I mean, it takes three seconds. I mean, making eggs is super easy if you do it this way. So you scoop it and you put it on the plate. And I think, hmm, that does not look great. Let's try the pancakes, okay? Now, I'm not going to make pancake batter. That would be ridiculous. So I bought some pre-made that was pink and it had a heart-shaped plastic thing. So I put that heart-shaped plastic thing in the skillet and then I take this pancake batter and I pour it into that shape. Several bad things then happen. (laughs) Number one, the batter starts seeping out underneath the heart. Who knew that that heart wasn't like made of lead in 10,000 pounds? So the heart starts looking like someone who's had many heart attacks hearts, okay? (laughs) Additionally, I realized that I couldn't cook both sides of the pancake. There was no way to flip it without it falling apart. So I brought Katie, I brought her a plate that had two burnt eggs and then a kind of heart-shaped pancake that was completely burnt on one side 
And on the other side was doughy and pink. And I said, this is a symbol of my love for you. Okay? That was not the first fruits of the dough. That was not what was best. Okay? Let me explain what's going on with this language of dough and lump and these kind of things. In the Old Testament, you had to take the best of your produce, and that's what you gave to God. Okay? That's what you gave to the temple to serve ministers who are offering sacrifices and these kind of things, is you gave the first of your produce. Now, eventually, this extended to baked goods as well. This extended to, uh, this extended to things like dough. When the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, observant Jews, even to this day, sometimes when they're baking something, will pinch off a little piece of dough and throw it in the fire, as, as if a way to say, I'm giving this portion to God, if you want to say it that way. That's what the Apostle Paul is referencing. He's saying, in the Old Testament, you would bring first fruits to the temple, and all of it was holy. If you have a, uh, a root of a plant, all the branches are holy. So I'll give you a few passages where you see this. Numbers 15, 18 through 21. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land to which I bring you, and when you eat of the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution to the Lord. Of the first of your dough, you shall prevent, uh, sorry, prevent, present a loaf as a contribution, like a contribution from the threshing floor. So you shall present it. Some of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution throughout your generations. Nehemiah 10.37 And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priest, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. Okay? So here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Both of these images, by the way, of dough and the root are really talking about the same thing. The dough is a reference to the fact that you would give a portion of that to the temple, and all of it would be holy. And the root is a reference to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is compared to an olive tree in Jeremiah and Hosea and elsewhere in the Old Testament. So here's what he's simply saying. The dough here are the first fruits, and the root refer to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you look down further in your Bible in verse 28, it'll actually says that Israel, it'll say that Israel is beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So I say all of that to say this. Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. If the forefathers are holy, if God has made promises to the forefathers, if this root is holy, if this first fruits is holy, then there's a sense in which Israel is holy. They're not saved apart from Christ. Not all of them will be saved. But the Apostle Paul here is projecting that there's something going on where there's a temporary hardening over their heart that one day God will remove. Zach, what does that look like exactly? I don't know. And I'm not sure anybody does. It doesn't look like a lot of weird stuff I see on TBN with charts and flaming tanks and Israeli flags. It doesn't look like that. But I don't know exactly what it does look like. Okay? Now, I want to say this to end, to wrap up here uh, this section in, uh, in Romans. Two things I want to give you. The first one is this. The trick to understanding Romans 11 is to realize that the nation of Israel, the corporate nation of Israel, is different than every single Jew. Okay? The Apostle Paul will use the term Israel in several different ways, and you have to define how he's using it for Romans 11 to make sense. Think about the differences of these two sentences. If I say, America is great, does that mean I think every single American is great? No. One is a corporate entity to say, on the whole, America's great, something like that. That doesn't mean that I think all the serial killers in America and all the drug dealers in America and all these kind of things are great. So keep that in mind when reading Romans 11. A lot of times what the Apostle Paul is saying is that God loves Israel. That doesn't mean that he has accepted every single Jew. Keep that in mind. And then second of all, and I want to end with this, what relevance does this have for our lives? Here we just read a text about first fruits, 
and Gentiles and a good kind of jealousy and all these other kind of things. What's going on here? Let me give you a very practical thing that you can take away from this text. Let me ask you this question. Why is it that God is doing salvation this way? Why doesn't Jesus just show up and the Jews immediately accept him? Why doesn't Jesus just show up and the Gentiles immediately accept him? Why is God doing this weird staggering thing where he goes to the Jews, they reject him, he goes to the Gentiles, they accept him, that makes Israel jealous, so eventually they accept it. What's going on with that? Here's the, here's the deal, okay? God is doing salvation this way so that nobody can come to him apart from mercy. God is making everyone choose disobedience so that he might have mercy on everyone that he has mercy on. This is a, this is a text about the radical grace of God. When you go to the Jews in the first century and they reject the Messiah and then you go to the Gentiles, the Gentiles are like, sweet, we get into salvation. That's awesome. We don't even have to become Jewish. We don't have to be circumcised and follow the Mosaic law. Salvation is just a free gift to us received by faith. And then the Jews who've rejected Christ then have to go back and say, I'm sorry, you are the Messiah. You see, what God is doing is he is crushing both Jew and Gentile under disobedience so nobody coasts in. Nobody's entitled. Nobody has a right to salvation. This is a text that radically destroys our salvific entitlement. I hate entitlement because God owes you nothing. He owes you damnation. Everything else is a gift. That's it. The only thing God owes you is punishment. Everything else is a gift. And in this text, what we're seeing is God gives grace to the Gentile, so they get in and it's just by God's grace. And then that means the Jews who rejected Jesus, who are under God's wrath, the only way there's salvation for, him, for them is to repent and trust in Christ. What God is doing is he is making it where there is no human merit. There is no human performance. There is no appealing to ethnicity. There is none of that. If you want salvation, here's the way you get it. You crawl before the cross of Christ as a broken sinner on your knees who only deserves condemnation, and you ask the God-man for salvation. You ask Christ to redeem you, to forgive you, to save you. You don't try to do better. You don't try harder. You don't clean yourself up. You don't do any of that. God doesn't want it like that. He wanted you to fail so you could have mercy on you. That's what the Apostle Paul would say to us from this text, applying it 2,000 years later today. And we'll see more of that as we continue in Romans 11 in the upcoming weeks. Let's pray together as uh, those helping serve communion come forward to pass out the elements. Almighty God, we thank you for your grace and just ask that you would guide us. We thank you for this text. I confess it's kind of a weird text. It's kind of uh, futuristic-y a little bit, but I don't really know what's going on, and I'm not really sure what you're doing with Israel. I know no one's saved apart from Christ. I know that Christ only has one bride, the church, which is made up of Jew and Gentile. I thank you that the Gentiles haven't replaced Jews, but rather Jew and Gentile are saved in Christ. That's the church. And so I thank you for this text. I pray that you would help us apply it to our heart, that we uh, who are trying to earn your favor. I confess that that is a universal human condition. Mankind, whether we're Jew or Gentile, we just want to earn a little bit. We just want to save ourselves a little bit. We just want to think, yes, salvation's basically a gift, but my job is to clean myself up and dot all my I's and cross all my T's and do the best I can, and then grace will just make up for the rest. I pray that you'd help us know that that is false doctrine, that grace is not making up where we lack. Grace is doing it all. Grace is not the extra 10% we need. It's the whole 100% that we need. We thank you for this. Pray that you would help us remember this as we partake of the elements in communion. In Christ's name, amen.